On March 10, 1940, Chuck Norris was born. So his birthday is coming up, mark it well. The Air Force veteran, actor, martial arts expert, all around extraordinary tough guy, turned 77 last year, soon to be 78. And if you know anything about the exploits of Chuck Norris, you know that whenever his birthday comes around, the internet is full of amazing facts about Chuck Norris. So last year, it said, Chuck Norris turns 77 years old today, or rather, 77 turns Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris built the hospital he was born in. On his birthday, Chuck Norris selects one lucky child to be thrown into the sun. Time waits for no man unless that man is Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris does not sleep. He waits. There is no theory of evolution, just a list of creatures Chuck Norris permits to live. When Chuck Norris falls in water, Chuck Norris doesn't get wet. Water gets Chuck Norris. Hmm, Chuck Norris can slam a revolving door. Santa Claus asks Chuck Norris for presents. Chuck Norris doesn't dial the wrong number. You answer the wrong phone. So, by now you're thinking, this is a great sermon. I hope he'll just do this for a half hour. You can go find your favorite Chuck Norris memes afterward. The joke, of course, which I'll ruin by explaining, is that a 77, almost 78-year-old actor is not actually the most astounding, most powerful, most stupendously awesome being in the universe. They're funny because although he has a reputation for being this tough guy on the screen and beating everybody up, we all know that it's absurd. I'm sure Chuck Norris is a great guy, but we will be disappointed if we think that life's difficulties and disappointments can be helped by beholding the greatness of any man, any woman, even someone as great as Chuck Norris. But what about the creator of the universe? What if we were to behold the one about whom there are no exaggerations, no absurd claims? You cannot overstate the greatness of God. And whatever your faith commitment is in this room, you've been a Christian your whole life, you're sort of checking things out, somebody just made you come here You're a pastor. This much I can say for certain, every single one of you, including myself, your picture of God is far too small. We have not begun to fathom the greatness of God. And if you want to be relevant in your life, if you want to be relevant in reaching out to your friends and neighbors, if you want to have a relevant church, have a big God. We are tempted to look down at our lives and see reasons to be afraid, reasons to panic, reasons to throw in the towel, but the Bible says, don't look down, look up, and behold your God. Here's the 
the secret of transformation, of sanctification. Here it is. Maybe you've heard this line before. We all become what we behold. We become what we behold. You cannot grow into a person of purpose and character and Christ-likeness and godliness and holiness if all you behold is YouTube, video games and movies and whatever else. We will all in time become what we behold. What you gaze upon, what you're transfixed upon is what you will grow into. So behold your God. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Kind of right in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah chapter 40. There's Psalms and Proverbs there in the middle. Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. You come to Isaiah chapter 40. Here's the setting. God's people are in captivity. Now, they're not actually in captivity, but when Isaiah gives this prophecy, but he's, he's prophesying into the future a time when they will be put into captivity. Let me give you just a, a, a rough outline of the Bible. You ever read through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and you think, this does, I don't know where I am. I don't know what's going on, how to make sense of this. Let me give you just some big, some big milestone markers. You got Abraham... It's around 2000 BC. Okay, so you got that. You got Moses around 1500, more like 14, but just some big markers. Abraham 2000, Moses 1500, David 1000 BC, and then the Babylonian captivity right around the 500 BC. So if you get nothing else, you can think of where am I in this storyline of the Bible? So Jesus is, you know, right at zero when BC goes to AD or maybe a few years on either side, depending on how you count it. You got Abraham 2000, Moses 1500, David 1000, the Babylonian captivity 500. So that's where we are in history. Isaiah actually prophesying in the 700s is looking to that time when the southern kingdom of Judah will be led off into captivity by the Babylonians, and then he foresees the time when God will rescue them from their bondage. And so he says here in verse 9, we'll pick up in verse 9, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a 
drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? <laughs> a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Here's the point. The greatness of God is good news for weary people who wait for him. The greatness of God is good news for weary people who wait for him. I want us to focus in this next 25 minutes or so on the greatness of God seen in this passage. In a number of ways, the greatness of God is displayed, is celebrated, and you need to see them. Because what ails us in the church, in this country, more than anything else, is we have an impoverished view of God. He's small, he's tiny, and that's not the God that we see in a passage like this. Look at verse 12. You see the God of creation. He measured the, the waters in his hand. Many of you probably go to the ocean at some point. Nice thing about Carolinas, you just got a couple hours to the mountains, you got a couple hours to the ocean. At some point in the summer, you'll go and you'll see the ocean. You can't see the end of it. it seems to go on forever and ever and ever. God can hold the oceans in the hollow of his hand. Of course, God doesn't actually have a body, doesn't actually have hands, but it's a way of describing the greatness of God. You, you can get in a plane and you can fly over the Atlantic Ocean and you'll be over it for hours and hours. You, you can fly in the other direction, go over the Pacific Ocean, the better part of a day before you get to land. And he holds it in the hollow of his hands. He measures the heavens 
with a span, that is, you know, we would say with a ruler, with a tape measure. How, how do we measure the heavens? How do we, me- we measure it by, by galaxies and by light years? When God wants to measure it, he just says a span, which, which in the, the Old Testament, a span was, was literally the span, the, the width of your, your hand. So God says, how big are the heavens? And God just does about that. The dust, the dirt, you think of all the sand, all the dirt on the face of the earth, and he says it's just a measuring cup. The mountains, the hills, you could weigh them in a kitchen scale on the balance. Verse 13 and 14, you see not only the God of creation and his greatness, but the God of wisdom. Who, who, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Who, or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? Who taught him? And the answer, of course, to all these questions is no one. No one can fathom God. No one gives him counsel. God is never up in heaven looking down, waiting for us to just tell him some new information. Like he's just sort of talking with the angels, Gabriel, Michael, I don't, I'm stumped. I got to wait till some people in Gastonia can tell me what to do. <laughs> Not like that. Now he listens to our prayers. He loves it when we pray. In fact, he commands us to pray. But he doesn't, he never learns something from us. We don't give him any counsel. He needs no consultants. He doesn't have to overcome any rival power. See, back in the ancient world, this is how most people thought about their gods. Yeah, they had gods and goddesses, and they did cool stuff, and they could bring rain, and they could make you have babies, and they could do powerful things, but they were sort of territorial gods. And there was a god of the mountains, or a god of the hills, or a god of the seas, or a god of this people and that people. And so many of the creation stories in the ancient world They had one God, had to fight and duke it out with another God, had to overpower him or kill her. Or you would have gods and they would have to come together and one would make an unwise decision, another one would come along and consult him. That's the way they thought of their gods. Their gods were like sort of superheroes. They're not perfect, they're not all powerful, but they have special powers. But they're flawed, they're fallen, just like you see in any superhero movie. That was their God, but not the God of the Bible, not Yahweh. He doesn't need advice. He doesn't need anything. He's not lonely. He's not desperate for affection. Don't think that God created the universe because he was lonely or because he just really wanted people to hang out with. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity were perfectly happy within their Trinitarian relations. God does not grow up. He's already perfect. He does not learn. His knowledge is limitless. His understanding never increases. He already knows. He already plans the end from the beginning. And look at verses 15, 16, 17. The nations drop from a bucket. A little drop of water. We, we think that the United States of America is pretty powerful. The biggest economy by far. Um, the biggest military by far. Our cultural footprint is all over the world. People are looking to Hollywood, looking to New York, what, what you know, 
People say, when you sneeze in America, the rest of the world catches a cold. We live in, really without argument, the most powerful, most economically advanced country there is. A drop, a drop from a bucket. I'm all for patriotism, all for celebrating our, our country and the good things about it, but we must keep it in perspective. How old is the United States? You know, it's really not very old. How old is God? Mm, he never started. <laughs> and, if, if, and if Jesus Christ doesn't come back for however many decades, hundreds, thousands of years, we don't know, the United States will come and go. It will stub its toe on, on, on the boundary of God's history and it will be gone just like the Roman Empire, or just like Egyptian dynasty. A drop in the bucket. You know, verse 16, Lebanon. Lebanon was, was the, the area north of Israel that was famous for their wood, the cedars of Lebanon. This was the great forest. This is where Solomon went to build his temple, to get the wood there. I said, you know what, Lebanon, this would be like, you know, Appalachia. And I've learned since moving here, it's not Appalachian or it's Latian, it's Latch. I've been rebuked for that. You go there, you see the woods, you see the trees. God says, it's not enough for one, one burnt offering for me. How can a drop from a bucket limit the one who measures the oceans in his hand? Do you, see, do you see the distinction? God measures the oceans. How big is the Pacific Ocean? God says, all right, it's about this big. That's the ocean to God. The nations, America, Russia, China, India, a drop from a bucket. The islands takes up as if they were just dust, just wipe that off the scale. And so verse 18, he says, uh, let me ask you a question. To whom then will you liken God? He says, an idol? Ha, an idol. You get your best workers and they spend all your money and you lay out your best gold and silver and what do you get? You get a nice statue and it can't move, it can't talk, it can't think, it can't act, it can't do anything. Now, some of us are liable to sit back and say, I know, it's so dumb. People used to have idols. <laughs> I'm so glad I don't have any idols. <laughs> An idol is whatever you depend on for your meaning, your purpose, your validation in life. For some of you, it's how you look. For some of you, it's the clothes you wear. For some of you, it's the, the football team you follow. For some of you, it's your sports that you're pursuing, it's the grades that you get, that, that's, that's an idol. So yeah, we, we don't make them out of gold, but we make them out of GPA, we make them out of Facebook likes, or I know, you're not, you, you know your parents are on Facebook, you're not on there anymore, Instagram, whatever. Uh, it's still an idol. It's where we look for purpose, for meaning. You know, your idols will always let you down. They'll always let you down. Says you make an idol out of gold, <laughs> it can't do anything, can't help you. You see, verse 21, more questions. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Hasn't someone told you? 
He's bigger than the earth. I mean, people are like grasshoppers. Now, some people don't like being thought of as grasshoppers. <laughs> they like to think of themselves as very important. There's a saying, I don't know if it's true, but it said that Winston Churchill, you know, the, you may have heard of him from movies that have come out. Winston Churchill, uh, he said one time, well, uh, I know it is said that we are worms, but I do believe that I am a glowworm. Well, that's how many of us think. If I have to be a worm, I'll be a glowworm. We don't like to be grasshoppers. And of course, in one sense, we, we have infinite worth and value being made in the image of God. But compared to God and his greatness, little grasshoppers. God looks down and says, isn't that cute? You ever, you ever see a bunch of ants on the ground and they're digging their little, their little holes and they're making their little mounds and... You see it in the cracks of your driveway? You impressed? What do you do? Get that out of there. Are they, uh, are, 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 are they much for you to take care of? Even a whole bunch of them? You get a spray, you stomp under your foot, they're little ants. There they are, look at them. We're grasshoppers compared to the greatness and bigness of God. That's what it says here in verse 22. He stretches out the heaven like a curtain. This is the one chore that I'm good at in our house. Somehow I have this maniacal obsession to make sure that the curtains are open in the morning and closed when the sun goes down. So that's my first thing to do when I get up, open all the curtains. When the sun goes down, I close them all. It's not hard. That's why I pick the chore. It's an easy one. You pretty much have to be able to use your arm and do this. Mm, open, shut. So that's what God does with the heavens. Just open, shut. It's not hard for God. It's not difficult. He oversees all things, heavens above, kings, kingdoms. He brings princes to nothing. They're toppled like plants. And then there's a question in verse 25 and 26. To whom will you compare me? That I should be like him. You can't say, well, God is like what? Okay, Jesus, there's a good answer, but... Actually, Jesus is God. We'll get into that later. But you, you can't say God is like and fill in the blank with one of his created things. It's so far beneath God. There are no analogies. He calls out the stars by name. You see that verse 26? He who brings out their host, meaning the stars, by number, calling them all by name. Do you have any idea how big the universe is? Any idea? Our sun is a mere 93 million miles from Earth. Seems like a long ways. If the Earth were the size of a grapefruit, so, I don't know, picture bigger than my fist, but here's a grapefruit. If that's the Earth, the moon would be a ping pong ball about 12 feet away. My wingspan's a little more than six feet, so twice as far. So here, here, here's the earth, grapefruit, put it there, go over here, ping pong ball, there's the moon. How big would the sun be? The sun would be a ball of fire as big as a four-story building one mile away. Earth is a grapefruit, 
Over here, over here's a ping pong ball for the moon. The sun is a four-story building a mile away. And Pluto, Pluto, Earth is a grapefruit, moon is a ping pong ball, sun is a four-story building a mile away. Pluto is an invisible marble 37 miles away. And if you wanted to get on a plane and say you're going 500 miles per hour and you wanted to travel to the sun, don't recommend it, but you wanted to travel to the sun, it would take you 21 years to get there. If you wanted to go to Pluto, you would be in the air for more than 900 years. So get on a plane. I want to go visit Pluto. Hope you started a long time ago. Pack some snacks. It's 900 years away on a plane. That's just our solar system. If we flew on the same plane to the nearest group of stars, Alpha Centauri, which is only 4.3 light years away, it would take us 6 million years on a plane to get there. By comparison, the nearest galaxy to the Milky Way, the Andromeda Galaxy, is 2.5 million light years away. Okay, you can't even, that's 15 quintillion miles, 15 with 18 zeros. And if you want to go to Andromeda, which is the nearest galaxy to the Milky Way, you would be on your plane for 4.2 trillion years. Now, now, keep in mind, we're just to the neighboring galaxy. The farthest galaxy the Hubble telescope has been able to detect is 13 billion light years from Earth. So light, traveling at the speed of light, takes 13 billion years to get here. That's 78 sextillion miles away, 78 with 21 zeros. If you got on a plane and wanted to go to that galaxy that can be seen in the Hubble telescope, it would take you 20 quadrillion years to get there. It doesn't even matter what what numbers I'm saying right now because we don't know what any of them look like or feel. And, And so keep this in mind, when you get on your plane, and go to that galaxy that the Hubble telescope can see, and you're going to be on the plane for 20 quadrillion years, it's not like you're just flying through nothingness. The universe is full of stars. The Milky Way itself has 150 to 200 billion stars. And that's one galaxy. And scientists estimate there may be another 150 billion galaxies. So if if you just want to round up and say there are 10 million people on the planet, then every person on the planet can have 15 galaxies to themselves, which is why you can name a star after you for $100, because we're never running out of stars. And Psalm 147, verse 4 says, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. And Isaiah 40 says, he brings out their hosts by number. He calls them all by name. God knows the names of all those stars. Do you know scientists a few years ago tried to determine, are there more stars in the universe or grains of sand on the planet? Seems like a small project to try to figure out. 
So they had some mechanism of doing it and multiplying the fear. I mean, you think about, you, you just go to the beach. If you went to the beach this summer, you still have sand in your toes. It never comes out. You just, you, you grab a handful of that fine beach sand. You, you couldn't begin to count all those grains of sand. How, how many are in just the palm of your hand? Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And that's just in your hand. And you have a beach that goes for miles and miles. And then you have deserts all over. Scientists estimate that there are far more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the seashore. That's how massive the universe is. And God did it. And every one of those stars had a beginning, but God had no beginning. Can you imagine why Revelation 4 says, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created? This is a massive God. And you have not begun to fathom how big this God. You, you know why one of the reasons people are disinterested in God? Because he's small, because he's puny. You know, we can tell people till we're blue in the face, well, you need Jesus, he's, he's, the, he's the bridge because you're sinful and God's holy. But people don't feel that. Some of you don't feel that because God is sort of like you, but a little bigger, a little better. And so you're not perfect and you sin some, but you, you don't feel how big this God is and how small and sinful we are by comparison. We don't begin to fathom it. You know, about... 10, 15 years ago, some sociologists did this massive study with people like you, uh, religious teenagers. And they try to gauge sort of what, what do people, and they looked at people go to church. What, what do these people who go to, what do they actually believe? What do they actually like? They may go to churches that say they believe certain things, but what do young people actually, what's their actual functional belief about God? And here's what, here's what they came up with. They came up with this, this phrase. Now, I'll give it to you, and then you're smart. You can understand it. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. No, just take that. Moralistic. They said what most, what most young people believe about their faith is moralism. God wants you to be moral. He wants you to be a better person. He wants you to try harder, not hurt people, not be judgmental, be inclusive, be nice. That's, that's it. Therapeutic. What does that mean? That means God wants you to feel good about yourself. He wants you to cope with life because life is hard and you feel beat up and you get wounded. And, and so God comes along, wants you to be a good person, wants you to feel good about yourself. And then deism, what's that? Well, that that's, that's an old belief that says there's a God out there, but he's kind of distant. He's like the God who just made the watch and then he wound it up and just let it go. He's sort of a God who's, he's out there. He, he's not intimately involved. He kind of, he comes and he helps me out when I get in a real jam. But he, he's, he exists, he's out there, he's important. But day-to-day -day life, he doesn't really have a bearing on what he does. That's the real faith that most people have in this country. God wants me to try hard and be a nice person. And... Um, he wants me to cope with life and helps me to feel better. And he's kind of out there and he, he's somewhere and sometimes when I need him, he comes. That is so far removed from this picture of God in the Bible who's massive and holy and knows 
everything and learns nothing and oversees sovereignly in control of every detail in your life. No wonder why we get bored with church, bored with Christianity. We have a boring God. He's just a little small superhero God. The people that think they're big shots are actually quite small. Look at verse 15. The nations are a drop from the bucket. Verse 17, the nations are accounted as nothing before him. Verse 23, he brings princes to nothing, rulers of the earth as emptiness, kings, queens, presidents, senators, nothing. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie. It's quite old now, like way back in the 1980s, called Chariots of Fire. You should see it. Uh, It's about uh, Eric Little, who was a great runner, refused to run on Sunday, and ended up winning the gold medal at the Paris Olympics in 1924, running a different race on a different day. But it's about his own struggle and comparing him to another runner, Harold Abrams. It's a great story. There's a beautiful scene, probably not true to life, but it's a great movie scene where Eric Little is in church on the Sunday where he was supposed to be running the Olympic race. But instead of doing that on Sunday, he was in church, and they show him up in this pulpit, and it's a very sort of dour-looking Presbyterian church. That's what we Presbyterians like to do. We do dour very well. And he's uh, out there, and he's reading this from Isaiah chapter 40. And see, he had, he had the, the, all of the, the kings and princes of Great Britain who were pressuring him, you have to do it for your country to run. And he said, I can't do it. And he reads this passage. He brings princes to nothing, makes the rulers of the earth as vanity. He was Scottish, so it sounded really cool. It's a great picture, this this contrast between the might of the kings and the princes and the presidents of the world and then God's word saying, I make them to nothing. Who are they? I'm not impressed. I'm not scared. The good news here is that this great God is on your side if you belong to Christ. If you think to yourself, I'm small, I'm insignificant, I'm weak, I'm weary, then congratulations, you are just the sort of person that God means to bless. If you hear and you think, I know I'm very important, I know that I'm quite something special, I know that I'm sort of a big shot on my school, on my team, in my church, in my family, then you're the sort of person that God may need to humble. The good news of God's greatness is that He is on your side when you wait for Him and you trust in Christ. So what do you do when you feel like you can't go on, when you feel like you don't know what to do? Notice what this passage says. It doesn't say, well, you do more, work more, try more. What it says is, behold, look. Look at this God. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. Why are you saying that? Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Some of you know that about yourself already, that you have limits. If any of you did really stay up all night, you will find that you have very severe limits, like you're sleeping right now. Even youths grow tired and weary. Even young men stumble and fall. But God never grows tired. He never grows weary. He never needs a nap. He strengthens us with power when we wait for him. We can endure almost anything if we have hope. And that's what this passage is about, that you hope in God and not hope in a little teeny God, in a big massive, holy, strong, sovereign creator, God. Have you really gazed upon, looked upon your God as he is, who he is, with all knowledge, power, holiness, immensity? And then do you stand back to marvel that the Bible says Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. Not just a buddy or a friend or a nice guy who walks around in a robe and a sash and just says, oh, I just wish you'd all get along. But the God of the universe through whom God created all things comes to dwell with us, to die for us, to be raised for us, to live for us. Do you know this God, or have you been imagining an imposter? Have you been thinking of a God of your own imagination? Have you been making a God of your own idol? Because this is the only God who can save, and this is the only God worth worshiping, and the only God who can really help you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, would you help these, these friends, these Brothers and sisters, these young people, to know you as you are. Help me, help my eyes to be open to know you as you are, to see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, have this knowledge which surpasses all understanding. Oh, Lord, help us to see you as you are, that you may come, draw near to us, help us, sustain us, that we may in time become what we behold. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.